Hello, and welcome to Community Calls, our ongoing effort to keep the community updated with COVID-19 and other health-related issues during the pandemic. I am Dr. Panagis Galiatsatos, an assistant professor at the Johns Hopkins School of Medicine and a physician in pulmonary and critical care. Thank you for joining us. Excellent. And so to our listeners, thank you for joining us again today. As always, you joining us, taking in this information, to me reaffirms your commitment to being the front line of people out there who can disseminate to your family, who can disseminate to your community, to your neighborhood, and so forth, and to your friends, public health information to promote health and prevent disease, specifically COVID-19. Today, you all are in, in my opinion, you're always in for a treat. You're always in for a, a good time with Kimberly and I. But today, the, the approach is going to be a little bit different, where we'll hear from one of you. We'll hear from a community leader of his battle of COVID-19, both to prevent it and his own battle as well. And I firmly believe his testimony will help save more lives than any doctor or nurse ever could, just like you all, taking this information going out and disseminating it, sharing with people how to stay safe in a time like this. Granted, much of our messaging really hasn't changed all too much, you know, an emphasis on the hygienic interventions of physical distancing, face masking, hand hygiene. But just because they're simple or what they seem like simple on paper doesn't necessarily mean it will be easy to implement, easy to um, abide by and so forth. So thank you all for what you continue to do. So it should be a great conversation today with the imam. From my standpoint, I'll go ahead and update us with the global numbers. And then what I'm going to do is go briefly into a conversation that I get many emails about, and that's sleep and COVID-19. So we'll go briefly into that. That'll be our COVID update. And then we'll hear from our amazing guest today. In regards to the global numbers in the world, there have been 110,952, I'm sorry, 110,950, I'm sorry, whoa, 110,952,337. I apologize, listeners, Dr. G has still not been properly caffeinated. So again, 110,952,337 cases globally. Deaths are at 2,454,722. Given us a global mortality rate of 2.2%. Here in the US, 28,526,513. And as we discussed last week, we'll likely cross the half million mark of COVID 19 related mortality in the month of February. Today, our report, we are at 505,325 cases of death caused by COVID-19 here in the United States, giving us a mortality rate of 1.8%. Here in the state of Maryland, we've had 373,966 cases with deaths of 7,479, giving the state of Maryland a mortality rate of 2%. And before we go into our guest, the COVID update I wanted to provide is about sleep. And the reason for this, one, we just booked Dr. Rachel Salas, who will be coming in in April, so in a few Fridays from now, and talk about 
her research that has generated eight international research trials around sleep and COVID-19, and potentially an intervention that could even help prevent life-threatening COVID-19. So more to come in April. But in the meantime, my conversation about sleep and COVID-19 is not one, maybe the listeners are thinking, they're like, oh my gosh, Dr. G, yes, the pandemic's been stressful. I haven't slept since February of 2020. I'm not gonna go into that. We'll let that be more tackled maybe for Dr. Hale in the future to relate about stress and so forth and how that impacts uh, COVID-19, uh, impacts people's sleep hygiene during COVID-19. What I'm gonna discuss is something that our post-COVID-19 clinic have seen a lot of. So in our post-COVID-19 clinic, we get to listen to the patient's stories, right, how they developed COVID, what they endured from COVID, right, were they admitted to the hospital, or were they home, and what happened. And then we listen to everything that they've been going through since COVID has resolved, what ongoing consequences, and so forth, as we hear, and the media sometimes dubbed as long haulers. I say this because... Believe it or not, you know, even though we're lung doctors and internal medicine, we do focus a lot on the brain in regards to mental health. From mood, you know, uh, people feeling depressed or stressed, to evaluation of uh, post-traumatic stress disorder, from mood to cognition, so how are people thinking and so forth, are they having this mental fogginess, to sleep. And it wasn't until one of my meetings earlier this week with my post-COVID-19 clinic uh, colleagues where we found that over 90% of our patients coming to clinic have sleep disruption. And what's unique about this, this wasn't something in the patients that they endorsed prior to them getting COVID. Now, sleep is very, it's a, it's a you know, I think we all understand what it is, but it's complicated, right? There's can you get to sleep? Can you stay asleep? And how well do you feel waking up? Are you refreshed, right? And I'm oversimplifying it, of course. But what we've been finding in many of our patients struggling with sleep after COVID-19 is a few things. One, a good portion of these patients, their sleep disruption is usually tied into a new mental health condition. For instance, um, many of our patients get diagnosed with depression or anxiety or PTSD. And these mental health conditions are known to disrupt the sleep cycle. A good portion of them had, these, uh, had depression or stress, for instance, prior to COVID. And through COVID, they've just gotten worse. Others, for instance, those with newly diagnosed post-traumatic stress disorder, that's new. That's new for them. And they get intrusive memories oftentimes invading their sleep, disrupting it, and waking them up. So when patients come in and they discuss their sleep hygiene with us, the first, what we try to get a sense of, are we also diagnosing uh, worsening of the prior mental health conditions or new mental health conditions? And is there sleep disruption linked with that? We see this because if we, if we do find it linked with it, we try to give them the appropriate um, interventions, and one of the most fruitful ones, right, and I, I know I'm a physician, and maybe many of you are like, oh, he's going to discuss a medication. No, for those going with, uh, from a sleep disruption, secondary to some of their mental health conditions, our psychology friends doing what's called cognitive behavioral therapy has been really done wonders for these patients. So 
that's one of the things we try to identify. However, others, no mental health conditions, none pre-existing ones and no new ones, and their sleep disruption fits almost along the category of insomnia. And so for these patients, and this is where Dr. Rachel Salas will weigh in a lot more in the near future, for these patients, what they are going through yeah, it's all new since their diagnosis of COVID-19. Now, I see this because diagnosing sleep issues, every physician should take a thorough history, uh, no different than one said, not chest pain. And so in my clinic, in our clinic, in the post-COVID clinic, when patients bring up sleep, and oftentimes they're ready to tell it to us, or oftentimes they're surprised by, hey, all right, you're going to talk about my sleep. Let me tell you why it hasn't been good since, you know, April 3rd when I was diagnosed with COVID. Once we're able to tease out mental health as an issue uh, and other issues, right? You know, some patients, you know, if they're, if they're using alcohol and so forth, that we try to identify that as potential impact on their sleep. But there is a good portion of our patients who their sleep hygiene was great before COVID, highly disrupted, and not linked to alcohol use or medication use or a mental health condition that has surfaced or worsened. And so for these patients, some of the initiatives that we're implementing or referring them to other than cognitive behavioral therapy is evaluation of the impact of melatonin. And so this is where you know, I'm teasing up our guests in April. But this is an incredibly interesting evaluation. Why? Why, why is Dr. G spending so much time on sleep? And hopefully I'm not putting any of our listeners to sleep. The reason being for it is the brain is an organ with nerves and so forth. And the sleep rattling or the sleep disruption could be secondary to just a general inflammation by the virus or more directed nerve injuries, analogous to what we're seeing with loss of smell and taste. So what I'm alluding to is by trying to understand why this sleep disruption occurred, it could find us ways to protect our nerves from ever getting injured from COVID-19 or from SARS-CoV-2, the virus, and potentially having consequences where patients' smell and taste don't get lost, and, and if they have, maybe we can get them to be improved, in addition to other things this virus does when it injures nerves, right? We've had patients with bladder incontinence, secondary to nerve injury from uh, SARS-CoV-2, to muscle weakness and so forth. So we all appreciate sleep. I get it. I love it as well, and what I'm really hopeful for is as we get to learn more about sleep insight and COVID happening here in the campus of Hopkins, this may result in just an overall impact in how we even battle severe COVID-19 and preventing it. So more to come, more to come. Let's bookmark it and come back to it when Dr. Rachel Salas comes, but I was just very excited to share that with our listeners. Now, let's pivot to our guest today. And to the community listeners, I promise you, you know, hearing a narrative is as impactful as any Dr. G statistics can say. And, doc, and uh, Imam reminds me that oftentimes, you know, in these calls you hear about the cases and people who have passed away, no one really talks about the aftermath or what you go through during it. So it is such an honor to have him here today. Kimberly, do you want to uh, continue introducing our guest and making sure the Imam is on the phone? I do. Thank you, Dr. G. So, Imam, are you on the line with us? And press star six to unmute your line. 
So what we'll do, Kimberly, let me uh, send him a text message. And Can you hear me? Uh, oh, here. yes, Imam, there Yay. you are. Perfect. <laughs> yes. Okay, great. So I'm going to go ahead and introduce you. And I'm telling you, I was reading um, your bio, and I... I am just so impressed with everything. I was like, how can I just pick out a few things to highlight about you? Um, it's so amazing. And as we talk about um, our cars, but every time I think of you, I think of you asking me about how my car is. <laughs> so I'm so, uh, so glad. I, I've missed seeing you. So I'm so glad that um, you're here, even though I can't see you. But to hear you um, is still an honor and a privilege. So, um, again, I wanted to um, introduce to our, our listeners Imam Hussan Amin, who is the Imam at Johns Hopkins University and volunteer Islamic chaplain at Johns Hopkins Hospital. Additionally, he is the Islamic chaplain with Baltimore City's Police Department and with the United States Park Police. He's the founder and executive director of Muslim Social Service Agency of Baltimore City, Maryland. And since 2003, his organization has helped over 50,000 low-income and homeless families and individuals connect to social service needs. And one of the things I read, um, I just I had no idea that um, he, that you had received two mayor's citation for your contributions to the civic welfare of Baltimore City, and that Mayor Martin O'Malley had designated March 4, 2004, as Imam Hassan Amin Day. That is so exciting. So thank you for all of your hard work, all of your efforts, and helping making our community safer. And thank you so much for joining us today and sharing your story. Sure. It's, uh, it's my pleasure. You want me to go ahead? Um, yes, and I'll kind of let Dr. G kind of um, kind of lead a discussion. And as we get questions from the community, I'll kind of chime in if that's okay. And, and, and let me start off by this. Imam, before you go into battling your discussions, your personal discussion battling COVID. Can you spend just a few minutes on how you've been battling COVID for the community? Can you share just some of the great work? I see this because, Imam, you are exactly why we do these calls, to listen to the information and get it out there. Tell us briefly what you and your colleagues have been doing over almost the last year of battling this pandemic. Do you mind spending a few minutes on that? Sure, no problem. I also want to mention that um, I think that my wife should be on because she hasn't battled this thing with me um, from from the beginning. And so she may have to also, I think, star six uh, because she, she's going to share also her experience side by side with me with the battle um, when you talk about the helping other people first. Um, so I just want to mention that. So Perfect. Thank you, I Mom. just want to – uh, Kimberly can take care of that for me. Um, no worries. And I just I just want to mention that prior to COVID, I I always focus on helping people who are in need in terms of uh, giving them food, gift cards, uh, children who can don't usually go to go to school to get their breakfast, so we give them ten dollars subway cards, and also non-parents with eyes that we get to people. I invite Dr. G. Um, with Medicine Greater Good, and he will also be in the line talking to the people that uh, about COVID, giving them COVID updates, and we give masks out to people, we give hand sanitizer out to people, and so we, we help people in all kinds of ways to, while they're going through this 
COVID epidemic. And so that's what I, I was doing prior to the getting COVID because I did everything I could imagine not to get COVID. I want to also say this, that in Islam, I'm a Muslim, in Islam, if you say you save a, um, when you when you save one life, it's like saving the life of all of humanity. And so hopefully something that I say will help someone out there that's listening in some kind of, some kind of way. And I'm not advising anyone to do anything either way to get, to get the, the, the shot, not to get the shot, anything like that. I'm just telling you what I've, what I've been through in terms of the whole COVID. Not, like I said, I did everything I could think of. I exercised every day, six days a week for about an hour, hour or so. I avoid people. I even put my mask on around my family. When none of them had masks on, I was the only one that had a, that had a mask on. I'm 68, 68 years old, and so I, it wasn't about the age and, and getting COVID. Anyone can get COVID. Nine-year-old girl, 10-year-old boy, whatever, it doesn't matter. They get COVID, and they, and they, can, they can die uh, from, from COVID, or they can survive like, like I have um, through the blessing of, of Allah. When I, when I first, I did everything I could think of to avoid. I stayed home. I'm retired. And so I stayed home to, to avoid being, being around people. Matter of fact, I didn't even go to hospital appointments. I canceled my dental appointment because I really did not want to be around people to take a chance of catching the COVID. But I caught it. Whatever way I caught it, I, I, I caught the COVID virus. And so what happened is I didn't even know I had it. It's like I had, I, I checked my, uh, what is my, my oxygen level. I bought, my wife my, bought one of those, those little machines um, from my thing, Walgreen. Let's just check my oxygen. It was, it was at a good level. I checked my, my, I checked my vitals that was at a good level. I checked my forehead and made sure that I have a fever, a fever. The most I got was about 99. And so I didn't have any of the, of the flu uh, symptoms. I had nothing. I just knew that I felt bad. And I didn't know why I was, why I was feeling bad. And then, matter of fact, Dr. G, who is a, who is a good friend of, of mine for, uh, for, for years, and we did a lot of other programs together, he, took, he talked to me, and my wife and son talked, and he said, call Dr. G and get his advice about what you should do. Because I took, I took Theraflu, I, took, I had soup, I had a lot to drink, I did everything I could think of, but I didn't know how sick I was. And then, yes. Oh, Imam, no, I, I think actually that part, that, that's right there. That comment, I think we're going to continue transitioning into that because for our listeners, please understand, like I, Imam Hassan, of course, has done everything, and many of you will. But that's what makes Mother Nature so, so diabolical sometimes is even with the proper precautions, I think it can help prevent, but doesn't buy us 100%. And so when Imam got sick, I mean, Imam, you were doing everything possible to not get worse. And then yes. you ended up going into the hospital. Tell, can you yeah. tell our listeners that, like, you know, what you can remember? And maybe this is also where Zakia can weigh in if she's there. What do you remember? Because you, your battle with COVID was life-threatening. Tell us a little bit about that. Okay. And 
So after I talk with you on the phone and and you advise go to the hospital and Zakia, my wife and my son, they walk me to the vehicle and they check me into the hospital. Only that I remember that they were putting a hospital band on me with my name on it and I checked into and checked into the hospital, matter of fact, into Johns Hopkins um, Hospital. And if Zakia is on, she can give you sort of details, and then I can go on the other side about what I, more of my experience um, for, on my battle with COVID. Zakia, are you on? You got to, you got to start. Six stars, star six, I think it is. Yeah, star six. Star. And, and as we're waiting for Zakia to join. Um, hello? Oh, Zakia, there you are, my friend. There you okay. are. Okay, oh. right, thank you. Okay, hello, everyone. Hello, Zakia. So, Zakia, I think what the mom has just prepared our listeners for so when, when patients go into the ICU, and this is what Reverend Paula Teague has done and Chaplain um, Will Johnson has emphasized, find people who can speak for you because COVID robs people of voices to speak and advocate for themselves. So can you begin to weigh in what you were, what you were doing for Imam? Like, how, like tell us about the communication with the team. Um, all, you know, capture it all, like these moments, because, you know, I, I, I remember talking to you, Zakia. These were... These were incredibly dire times. Yes, that is true. Um, again, I hope everybody's having a nice day and is staying safe out here today. Um, yes, when um, Hassan went in, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a mad person, so I like to do dates, but just keeping it short, um, when he went in on um, December the 12th, the evening of December the 12th, um, and he was taken right up, of course, and by that... Um, by the night, they had decided, um, well, of course, he did have COVID, and they were going to put him in the, um, in the ICC unit, um, and he was put um, on the ventilator um, in less than uh, 24 hours. Um, he was put on the ventilator, and they did intubate him. Um, now, when it comes to intubation, I think that... Um, the term is used, and the term ventilator is used. But I think sometimes people who are not in the medical profession really don't understand what it is. So I guess the best way, and it's kind of scary, because um, it's like putting the person into a medically induced coma. Um, so um, that's a little scary probably you know, for everybody's family. And so he was on oxygen, 100% oxygen. Um, he was um, intubated for um, for about ten days. He was intubated. Um, one good thing I would like to say about Johns Hopkins Hospital is that they worked very well with me and my family, um, keeping us informed. So while he was in ICU, I spoke to a nurse and a doctor every day, um, with them giving me constant updates. I'm a person that likes to ask a lot of questions. And they were very patient with me. So I definitely want to commend um, the unit um, that is at um, Johns Hopkins um, on Nelson's side. They were very um, helpful. Uh, they listened to my questions. They answered them. Um, 
they put him on um, on Zoom. So even though he was not responsive, uh, we were able to see him, which did uh, provide uh, some kind of solace for us. You know, knowing that you know that he was okay, and you know they were working on him and doing um, and doing their best. Um, one thing that did happen that was a little alarming is that he was put on uh, dialysis. And that was something that was somewhat of a shock. I have since learned that that happens um, more frequently, I think, than a lot of people know when people do get COVID. Um, so during that time, um, as I said, you know, we did see him on Zoom. He was not able to communicate, but I was able to communicate on a regular basis um, with uh, the people who were taking care of him. Zakia, perfect summary. And I think, my friend, you, you, you said plenty. Um, so Zakia, thank you so much for, for joining. And for our listeners, to summarize what Zakia said and emphasize, and I really want you to take this to heart. Every time we have these calls, we always discuss how to prevent COVID, but even if you do, like Imam did, everything to not catch it, to be prepared if you should have to go into the hospital. And the things I want to commend Imam and Zakia with is, you know, Zakia, you know, and, and, and you know, whether it's a wife or a sister or so forth, every day spoke with the doctors and nurses. Every day. And she, she said, you know, graciously, they took their time. Everyone should be allotted that time because with COVID restrictions, family members aren't allowed to come in. And I, I promise you, if they were, Zakia would have been there 24-7 holding Imam's hand. However, because he couldn't, Zakia got the uh, dignity that she and her husband deserved with patient calls every day, staying updated. In the intensive care units, I can say these decisions happen pretty rapidly. And then you kind of just wait to see how it turns out. So the imam being put on a breathing machine all within 24 hours of going to the hospital, meaning a, a plastic tube down his throat into his lungs, put onto a machine to breathe for him to allow as long as the ability to heal, and let the machine do all the work. And then the other part that, um, Zakia, you did a great job of emphasizing, is that, yeah, we have to do these Zoom calls. So this virtual uh, reality of, of a sense for physical reality of coming into the patient's room through a computer. And Zakia would often tell me how she would just spend hours talking to the imam in that fashion. And I really encourage the listeners for this. Every physician and nurse who works in the intensive care unit knows there is a power in our family's voices when the patient hears it. I mean this from the bottom of my heart. Even though we put them in these medically induced comas, you can see some level of a physiological response when that person who's there you know, fighting, when they hear a song they, they like, and you know, we put it on because families always tell us about music, or to hear the voice of their wife, like Zakia, or their family, it goes a long way. And so I will say that, yes, the machines, you know, they did their job to help. But Zakia, you helped Imam survive as well. I mean it from the bottom of my heart, my friend. Um, any other closing comments before we turn it back to Imam? Um, no, just that, um, just the same thing that you said, you know, that it's very important, you know, that... Uh, that, you know, people do stay in, um, in touch with the families um, and, you know, just give them, you know, pretty much um, updates on what's going on. 
That's very important. And, you know, because even though, you know, things may be dire, it just helps to know that, you know, that people are communicating with you and um, that you can easily get in touch with them. Perfect. Zakia, well said. And so to our listeners, again, you know, the purpose and emphasis on this call is to recognize COVID-19 can still come into you and to your family. Doing all the proper precautions, some way, shape, or form, it may still come in. And so knowing that the hospital has changed drastically during COVID-19, right, family and loved ones aren't even allowed in, so we do this virtually, does it, shouldn't come at an immediate expense of our humanity. And so working with the doctors and nurses daily, as Akil was doing, talking to them daily, even if it meant hours, you have to do this. You have to get the peace of mind so you can continue guiding the team in intervention that your loved one would want. That's a huge part, Vicky, that you emphasize. One other thing, and then I'll turn it over to Imam because I want to hear how he's been doing since being home. One last part um, that Zakia mentioned, and Imam hinted at as well, that doesn't get the attention right, and I'm guilty of this as well. I'm a lung doctor, and we've brought on our heart doctors and even a brain doctor, but the kidneys. The kidneys, in, in the time that I've seen our patients in the intensive care unit, almost like 50% of them have some level of kidney injury, and then a good portion of them go into needing dialysis. So I agree with Zakia. It's not a conversation that gets as much attention, but to that survivor and to those families, until the kidneys come back, right, dialysis is going to be part of the conversation. And so that's, you know, I, I think Zakia, you've just, uh, Kimberly and I are going to find a good kidney doctor to be on one of these calls to speak about how much of a community impact this is making. And more importantly, the reason why we want to emphasize that, every listener on this call has realized it's kind of felt like we're playing catch-up a lot of times with COVID, getting the hospitals prepared, getting A, B, and C prepared. So if we might have a larger cohort of individuals surviving needing dialysis, are we prepared for that? So, Zaki, I promise you we'll get a kidney doctor on our Kimberly and Dr. G uh, community calls in the near future to have that conversation. Thank you for that inspiration. Okay, Imam, thank you. No worries, my friend. Imam, over to you. You know, Zakia, in an efficient manner, summarized your long journey, my friend. I mean, you were put on the most extreme life-supportive interventions. And the Tuesday, not the, this one, uh, well, maybe it was this one, or maybe the prior one, oh, they've all kind of blended together. When I heard your voice, oh, it was a Saturday morning. It was a Saturday morning when I heard your voice. In my, yes. I, you know, and to the listeners, I, I, I don't mind sharing this, I cried. You know, you mean a lot to, to us here at Hopkins. You mean a lot to the Baltimore community. You mean a lot to your family. So tell us how you are doing now, and especially to the listeners, what is a big focus as you continue to reclaim your life after battling COVID. Okay. I want to um, uh, mention, mention a few things. Uh, and because someone, uh, me in particular, uh, because I, I um, become COVID positive and went through the battle from, from being, from having tubes coming out, out all over my, my body like an octopus uh, until, until now, does not because you have your family member that had tubes all over them and they have COVID. That doesn't mean that their life is over. My Zakia 
and others that I know they pray for me and they and they have hope for me that I will survive it. Because a person has COVID does not mean they're not going to survive. There's no guarantee because we had I had a relative of mine. She she got, got caught COVID. She knew she had COVID on Thursday, and then that Saturday she was dead. And so it does not mean that situation is written for everyone. That that's what's written out in everyone's book that they're going to go in on Thursday and be dead by Saturday. I I started my COVID journey and uh, around December of tw- of um of twenty of last year until now. And so I only, I didn't even know I had a birthday on the twentieth of December. I didn't even know my birthday came in because I was I was in a coma. And in the coma, yeah, I mentioned people they can hear people and that sort of thing. That was not my case. I heard absolutely nothing from my family. They were praying for me. They were talking to me, and I heard nothing. I didn't really hear realize that I was everything was okay until I got out of ICU and got to another unit, which is Meyer Eight. And, I, and 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 Dr. G, the the family. I had a new family at Johns Hopkins Hospital. I'm not saying everyone flocked to Johns Hopkins Hospital because they'll be overwhelmed with COVID patients and all. But they were so professional. They cared about me. Matter of fact, they, I had one lady who was a technician. She worked on one floor because she worked me down on my on one floor. She came down from one floor down to my floor to make sure I had chip ice. And she said, here, I want to make sure you had the ice. And so that's how much they cared about me. They held my hand, um, the nurses. And so it was just really a, a beautiful thing that they cared about me so much. And I told a nurse that because I also work at Johns Hopkins a Muslim a Muslim chaplain, and and so of course I'm part of the Johns Hopkins family, and that's not why they cared about me. They just cared about me because I was their patient, and they and they just look at me as an African American man, 68 years old. He lived enough life. Just don't worry about him anymore. No, they looked at me as my life mattered. And so I really want to thank the staff at Johns Hopkins Hospital, the ICU staff, and also other staff that they took care of me. And, of course, I went from there, and I went to a, to a nursing home. I don't know if I'm going to name the nursing home or not because they did rehabilitation and helped me with and other things until I'm home, until I'm home right now. And I, so now I go to dialysis, dialysis every Monday, Tuesday, and Wednesday, because COVID is just it just really just does a thing to your organs, your your heart, your lungs, your kidneys, and it really did a a number a dance on my on my kidneys. I don't think anyone comes come out unscathed by having the COVID the COVID virus. Now we're not like leprosy, anything like that, like we're going to just give it to people, please don't think it like that. I know people may look at us and say, oh, get away from that person. They had COVID. Yeah, 
we have COVID. Yes, I'm a, a victim of COVID, but you haven't had it yet. And so really, I'm more afraid of you that you may give it to me a second time. So, so I just wanted to, uh, wanted to mention that to the people. And so I, I do have, and you had mentioned earlier about post-COVID um, symptoms, if you will. And one of those is, is some disruption in sleep. And while I was, and while I was um, COVID, uh, on the other side of the COVID, I was not in the COVID um, area anymore. I used to smell my food to make sure I could smell the, I could smell the different textures. And so I don't have a problem with that. And it tastes, I don't have a real problem. It changed just a little bit. Even with some staff from the hospital, uh, some staff from the nursing home and rehabilitation unit I was in, I could smell their perfume that they had on. And so even after they left the room, I could still smell it. So my smell was still very keen, I guess almost like a dog smell and not as long distance, but I still had good smell. That didn't bother me. But what I'm troubled with right now is that more so just getting my walking together and my balance together and that, and of course, the whole the whole um, thing with my kidneys. Uh, so I'm kind of going through that right now. Matter of fact, I have a nurse that's due here in a few minutes that's going to, a therapist, I'm sorry, that's going to go through therapy with me. And so I'm still sort of going through, sort of going through some things now with my, with my, with my, um, with the, with the people that, uh, that I, um, the people that are coming to visit me and helping me to become um, better. I, so I just want to mention, mention those, on those things. And so with each course. person comes with a unique set of post COVID, um, I guess, body, um, responses, because I want to mention one more thing is that I really itched a lot. And I talked to some person who also went through the COVID, uh, went through COVID for about a month and she, or they mentioned, yeah, I'm very sensitive and I itch a lot. And so I just want to mention those things and I, I'm going to stop now. If you have any Perfect. questions or comments. No worries. Imam, you have been, you, you, again, like, like Zakia, you captured a lot in that, right? Mm -hmm. You, you discussed kind of what you battled, you know, to the care that the staff is doing, right? And to our listeners, please understand, we, we are the humanity that, that, uh, that Imam uh, emphasized. And I imagine, you know, it was your Hopkins experience. I imagine other hospitals across the nation are trying to do the same. But we as staff have realized, you know, the fact that you can't get your own family there, many of us, as you said, Imam, we've become your family while you're there. We hold your hand. We make sure you get the ice chips you need. You know, it, it's those simple things that many physicians and nurses and from, you know, respiratory therapists and so forth, we've all realized we have to do. Um, it, you know, we're not uh, forced to do, but we realize, you know, these individuals, these human beings, these human beings, right? Mm -hmm. Like you, uh, Imam, you need a family while you're getting through this, and we are glad to adopt you for that brevity of time. And you continue to also capture one other thing, and so to our listeners, please, please convey this. COVID-19 continues to have stigma. It is powerful. 
And Iman, I think you did a great job emphasizing and even paralleling it to some extent to a biblical disease of leprosy or a religious one overall. And I, I couldn't agree with you more. You know, so much emphasis is put on not catching it. And then there is a stigma around those who have. And to our listeners, please, the best thing that we can do is continue fighting mis- misinformation and stigma. Powerful. Imam, you've covered everything, my friend. Um, hang on in case there's any questions from the community, but you've been powerful with this. Um, I'm holding back, again, my own tears of just hearing your voice and sharing your story. Uh, and uh, uh, shukran, uh, thank you, a big one to Zakia. So hold tight. I know Kimberly is getting some community questions. If they're more directed for me, I'll tackle them. But if there's any for you, Imam, we'll let you know, okay? So just hang tight. Okay? Sure. No problem. Thank you. Over to you, Kimberly. Thank you, Dr. G, and uh, thank you, Imam Islam. I really appreciate you um, sharing your story, and um, um, and I just wish you a very uh, speedy recovery, and I'm glad that you're doing better, so thank you. Thank you. Um, so actually, just um, a couple qu- I did get um, some feedback, um, just a lot of comments about the great discussion, so thank you. I'm glad that we did this. Um, just two questions. Um, just to address vaccines, of course. Um, and the first one we touched upon last week, um, but they keep coming in, so I'm wondering, Dr. G, if you could, um, if you wouldn't mind addressing it again. As far as um, taking some kind of NSAID or some Tylenol or ibuprofen prior to the vaccine, um, and not just because the effects may be 10, 12, hours after, but does it have any particular effect on the efficiency of the vaccine, if you do so? No, so thank you, Kimberly. And so for our listeners, of course, um, and I love this, so if you, if you don't capture the answer to this one week, always email us the following week. Kimberly, you know where to find Kimberly and I. We'll be here 11 a.m. Eastern Standard Time on Fridays. So the recommendation is if you get the vaccine and you develop some symptoms, right, fevers, chills, et cetera, you are welcomed to take something to alleviate those that you are medically fine to take, right? I say this, I don't want to be a proponent for Advil if you know you have, for instance, a bad ulcer in your stomach. So make sure you run it by your physician as well. There is some level of concern of pre-medicating to prevent those symptoms going into the vaccine. I will say, you know, there's, it's kind of mixed signals still in the medical community. But to our listeners, so this is, this is what I would recommend. I don't think premedicating is necessary immediately. Other than the immediate pain you may get from the needle, most of these symptoms begin to happen hours later. So if you feel uncomfortable hours later, yes, at that moment you're welcome to begin to take something to alleviate. So if you take it for pre-medication purposes, that window where those symptoms would even occur won't happen during that time frame. So right now, the medical community, a little bit mixed messaging just because, again, it's a new vaccine. It's hard to predict this kind of conversation early on, so it wasn't extensively studied. But what we, I think, can come across, even with some mixed signaling, is by all means mitigate the symptoms there is not an emphasis to premedicate, as a lot of these symptoms take hours to come later. So that, I, I would say for precaution, 
that's when I would take something. I wouldn't go in by taking it just because other than, and not to take away from the needle, it, it, it's going to cause some soreness, but I would 100% um, pursue taking something to mitigate the symptoms later on. So great question, Kimberly, from our community. And the, the next one is somewhat related to that. Um, so this individual had applied some heat to the soreness and stiffness in the arm where they were injected with a vaccine, but then they later heard that it was not advisable and would alter the effect of the vaccine. Is, this, is there any truth in that? So the vaccines, both Moderna and Pfizer, are intramuscular. So they go right into the muscle, right? So it's a rather deep injection. So for our listeners who don't like needles, don't stare at it as it's going in. So once it's in and, you know, the technician has pushed and the syringe is empty, you're fine. It's, I promise you it is dispersing in real time. And I imagine for many of our listeners, uh, they're usually you're waiting for about 15 minutes before you're allowed to go uh, go home. At least for the majority of the sites that I that I've checked in with, everyone's monitored for about 15 minutes uh, before leaving, and so that's plenty of time for that virus. I'm sorry, for that vaccine to be able to get into the blood system, start distributing itself out. So for our caller, I'm not. I haven't heard anything about applying heat. Um, later on that would mitigate the impact, this will spread, right? The vaccine, there's blood vessels galore in the muscles. This will spread the, almost instantaneously once again it gets in there. But it's a great question. I'll look a little bit more into this, but I have yet to tell a patient not to apply any heat if you have a very sore arm, um, you know, once you get home after the injection. It is because anatomically we expect some soreness, but keep in mind, you know, other, everyone experiences that differently. So I haven't heard anything along those lines. I think it's reasonable to apply some heat if you're having soreness there. Um, but once the vaccine gets into the muscle, almost instantaneously it begins to spread because it's coming into contact with the blood. And for the most part, you're sitting there for 15 minutes being monitored, which should be plenty of time to get into the body overall and begin to do what it needs to do. So, Kimberly, great question. Over to you, my friend, if there's any more. Thank you, Dr. G. And so in response to that, um, so I did before, as you were talking earlier, I was multitasking, and I looked up for an answer to that, and I did find something on that for, from the CDC on what to expect after. But I, I wanted to hear from the professionals, so I will send that as a resource um, to everyone after the call as well. And on that note, um, I did, I want to share with everyone, I did have my second dose of Moderna on Monday, um, as Dr. G had shared when he had his second dose. Um, I started experiencing side effects about 15 hours um, after I received the vaccine, um, like cold symptoms, um, some aches, some chills. For me, um, because I'm a little bit more sensitive, it lasted about 36 hours, and then I was feeling back to normal. But nothing that some rest and drinking lots of liquids um, didn't help. So I just wanted to share that with everyone. Um, and before we wrap up, could you just give an update, Dr. G, on any news regarding the Johnson Johnson vaccine? 
Yeah, no. So, um, and actually, as we were talking about this, our, you know, and uh, you can lay out next week, I think we have our, our Hopkins uh, team about the vaccine mo uh, mobile, mobile, mobile well, that will not, go out. Not yet confirmed. So, um, oh, not yet confirmed. Yeah, okay. not confirmed. She has clinics on Friday, so let's hold off on that one. All right, yeah. fair enough, fair enough. But what I'm going to do is grab our, our frequent guest, Dr. Jonathan Zennelman, um, to come in, um, so either maybe next week or the following, to update us as well with the Johnson & Johnson. So Dr. Zennelman, I'm not sure if our listeners uh, have uh, grasped, this man is an infectious disease guru. I mean, he um, since the 1980s and going through the impact he's had with HIV epidemics and so forth. I think it's because he's helped with the AstraZeneca trials, He's helped. He's on the board with Pfizer, and he has insight as well to Johnson and Johnson. So where I'm at at the moment is we are waiting for Johnson and Johnson to finish putting together the documents they need to submit to the FDA. So right now the the ball is in Johnson and Johnson's court. Every 24 hours or so, I hear a bit of oh today might be the day and so forth. And we've been kind of saying that since the um, first week of February. So. I'm still hopeful they'll submit in February in order to get it approved sometime in March and have our third vaccine. And then actually here on the Bayview campus, um, one of the companies that will be making it is right out of here, out of Baltimore. So to our listeners, two things we'll do. One, Dr. G and Kimberly, as you can tell, Kimberly sleuths away uh, to stay up to date. We'll see once we get word that um, Johnson & Johnson submitted their paperwork to the FDA, we'll make sure that you are notified. And two, Let's bring back Dr. Zellman, who probably gives us a little bit more of the inside scoop in colorful ways to uh, understand what's happening. So more to come. So great question, Kimberly. And, and does that bring us to an end? That surely does. Thank you very much. All right. So uh, this is Dr. G signing off. Imam, do you want to say a quick closing word before Kimberly turns it over to our chaplain? Uh, no. No, I think that was it. And if people have any questions afterwards, they can always send to yourself, uh, uh, Ms. Kimberly, and uh, and I can answer whatever question uh, needs to be answered if, if, if they like. But I want to thank you for uh, for the time. No, uh, Imam, it means the world to us to have one of our listeners, one of our community leaders on this call. It means a lot. Um, and my friend, uh, it's just, just more... More to come to save this uh, city, not save, but help this city. Um, so I'm excited about your next chapter post-COVID as well, Imam. We'll have to stay up to date with you. So Kimberly, over to you, my friend. Thank you both. Um, have a safe weekend. So before I turn the call over to Reverend T, um, please join us again for our next COVID-19 Community Partners Call on Friday, February the 26th at 11 a.m. And so now, for those who would like to stay on the call, Reverend Teague will offer a closing thoughts and a prayer. Thank you, Kimberly. Can you hear me okay? Yes, I can. Thank you. Thank you. Great. Um, first of all, I just want to thank um, Imam and just give thanks for your life and your ministry and your recovery, and um, you're in my prayers. I just wanted to say that. It was great to hear your voice today. Um, on this... On this icy and snowy day, I am really grateful again for the warmth of this community and our connections on this call. It just reminds me of the really deep um, Baltimore family that we've become. So let us pray. With gratitude, we join together. We are grateful for each one on this call and for those who have been part of the calls in the past who are not with us today. 
May you take this moment to be grateful for yourself, for the ways you are made in the image of love and creativity. May you take this moment to recognize how hard you work, to care, to give. May you take this moment to be grateful for your loved ones, those who give you joy and compassion and grace, for those who keep you going and support you. And finally, may you, may, may you take this moment to cherish your many blessings, especially at this time when the winter is long, the pandemic stretches forward, and the changes we hope for in the world are slow. I give thanks for each one of you. Amen. Thanks, Reverend Deegan. Thank you, everyone, for joining us today. Please stay safe, have a great weekend, and we'll talk to you soon. Bye-bye. This podcast is made possible by the Johns Hopkins Bayview Healthy Community Partnership, its Department of Spiritual Care and Chaplaincy, Johns Hopkins School of Medicine's Medicine for the Greater Good, and the Johns Hopkins Institute for Clinical and Translational Research.